Father, the scriptures tell us that the gospel is constantly increasing all over the world. And we are in a nation where we don't particularly see that. But when we go into other nations, nations that have far less than we do, it's very, very clear that your spirit is at work. I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in Africa, and I thank you for what you're doing in um, the Middle East, in Muslim countries, where some estimates are that people are coming to Christianity, Muslims are coming to Christianity a thousand to two thousand a month, and it's at the risk of their lives. But you're doing something remarkable and marvelous, and we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you have given each of us a mandate and you have given each of us a call. Uh, You don't call all of us to leave this country, but you call some of us. And we're thankful for the men who listen to the call and who obey you. We pray for Chad and his father as they are over there right now. And, And really in some places where it is very, very dark, And we ask that your spirit would go ahead of them. We pray that your angels would surround them in protection as they declare the truth of Christ, that you would give them a boldness to speak the gospel. And as they encounter any demonic activity to take authority that we have in Christ over that, if we resist the devil, he must flee from us. So we we thank you that they are there. We thank you for bringing Doug home safely. And we would pray, Lord, for for the churches over there, that they would have sound teaching and solid teaching and and sound doctrine where they can uh, lay a foundation that will last them for their entire lives. We are grateful, Lord, for your work in our hearts and in our lives. Those of us that are here, those of us that are going to stay here, Uh, You take each guy and you assign us to our post. We are where we are because you have put us there. And we want to be faithful in that spot in which you have placed us. And sometimes we get discouraged and sometimes we get frustrated and sometimes we want to leave and we want to bolt. But help us to remain faithful. Even in the midst of adversity and difficulty and frustration, For the guys that are here tonight and have pretty much reached the end of their rope, encourage them. And for the guys, Lord, that we have here tonight, that are in the process of making critical decisions about the next chapter of their lives, about uh, a change in employment, we pray that you will give them discernment and wisdom so that they will know that the choice that they are making is, is based on godly counsel and biblical truth. We are grateful, Lord, that even when we... Uh, make errors of judgment, and even when we make wrong decisions, and in the past, even when we have willfully gone against you, uh, you have not left us, but your sovereign hand is still upon us. And even when we run from you, you are still in charge of our lives, and you use that foolishness uh, to make us better men, and, and you use those experiences of rebellion uh, in due time to bring us back to you And we have been disciplined by it, and we have been taught by it. You use everything, Lord, in our lives, if if we will listen and if we will yield and if we will obey. 
Now, we pray for ourselves tonight that we might listen carefully to what Paul has to say. These are significant words, not just for Timothy, but for us. We're living in days where our heads spin at how fast things are changing in this country. Uh, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And we see foundations being destroyed. We, We see things happening out of panic and fear. That, 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 that just absolutely uh, stun us. Who would have imagined? Who would have thought? We thank you for the stability that we have in you. We thank you that our lives are built upon the rock. So we don't fear. We continue to follow you and put you first in our lives. Give us your wisdom tonight. Give us teachable hearts so that we don't miss what you have for us. And we would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in 2 Timothy. If you have your Bibles, let's turn there. And as we have pointed out over the last several weeks that we have met, uh, all of Paul's writings are important. They're all significant. They're all inspired by the Holy Spirit. The unique thing about this book of 2 Timothy is it is the last letter that Paul wrote. It's sort of the last will and testament. And as you know, uh, as a man is facing death, his, his last words uh, are significant words. It was in Barnes & Noble yesterday. Uh, I was waiting for a car to come out of a shop, and it was going to be a little longer. I went over to Barnes & Noble. I'm looking around the new books, and there's a little book there called Goners, G-O-N-E-R-S. And it was a little black book, and it was simply uh, famous people and their last words and the context of their last words. And I sat down in one of those comfortable chairs, and I read it for about 10 or 12 minutes and got uh, pretty much depressed. It was just utterly and totally depressing. Uh, I, I thought I might find something in there I could use, but I couldn't find anything. It just was absolutely, flat out depressing. Not at all what you find here. Uh, there's no question that Paul is in the last chapter of his life. I mean, there's no, there's no question at all. If you look over at 2 Timothy 4.6, and I keep referring to this because it really does set the stage of the book. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He knows it's over. You know, he doesn't know if it's this afternoon or if it's in 10 days or in two weeks. But he knows uh, he's in the last chapter, and Nero is the man in charge, and he's, uh, I mean, he, he's, a, he's an absolute lunatic, and at any moment, they're going to pull him out of that cell, and they're going to cut off his head, which is precisely what they did. But as I read Second Timothy, I get a whole different take than I had in Barnes & Noble the other day reading the book Goners. There's a whole different perspective. There's a whole different attitude. There's a whole different spirit. There's, uh, there, there's not resignation. There's not depression. There's not despair. There's not fear. There's not anxiety. Not in 2 Timothy, there's not. And why is that? Well, it's because Paul had a life-changing experience with the risen Christ, and it changed his entire life. Here, this guy who was the great enemy of Christianity. 
I mean, if, if, if anybody was the guy back in his day who was trying to undermine what the Spirit of God was doing, it was, it was him. He was known as Saul. A few weeks ago, we looked at his story. But God miraculously intervened as he was on his way to Damascus, and the Lord Jesus appeared to him and said, Hey, pal, you're mine. Come with me. And his life radically changed. So here he is now, years later, uh, and he's, he's writing this last epistle. He's writing this last letter to his uh, protege, to Timothy, uh, the young guy that uh, is going to take up the banner. What you really got going on here is you've got a passing of the baton. I don't watch a lot of track and field because I don't think there's a lot of track and field on television anymore. But back when Wide World of Sports was on, if you remember Wide World of Sports, and a lot of you guys do, uh, you know, that's hard to cover a sporting event 52 weeks a year. I mean, when especially one that's unique. So why will the sports, they used to cover some of the track and field events that don't get coverage anymore, like the, the Drake relays. Do you guys remember the Drake relays? Or do you have a life? Uh, they still do the Drake relays. And, they, they, you know, they had, this, uh, they had this circuit, the track and field. They'd, they'd do indoor track, and then when the weather got nice, and they'd go outdoor. I remember going to the Cow Palace with my dad in San Francisco, in 19, probably 65, watching Jim Ryan, who was still in high school. I mean, the, this kid out of Kansas, who's now a congressman, and a guy who's real devoted to Christ. I mean, he was breaking records like crazy. The guy was unbelievable. Uh, track and field used to get a lot more attention than it gets now. Now, I had a reason for bringing up track and field. And I, oh, I got it. I lost it for a minute. I get a little nervous there. I, this is happening to me more and more now. But uh, one of the things that you watch, and, and I, I just watched the Summer Olympics, as you probably did. I watched the 100 meters. But I also like to watch the, those relay races because those guys are fast. And you don't, you know, but, but the thing is, you can be the fastest team. But if you don't know how to do something that's pretty simple, you can, you can get embarrassed real quick. And what I'm talking about is in the relays, you see these guys are world-class athletes. I mean, these suckers are in shape. These guys are well-oiled machines. But for some reason, they have a heck of a time passing a baton. It seems to me you see a lot more batons drop now than you used to see. But then again, it seems to me when I watch football, I see a lot more drop passes now than I used to see. Yeah. But now T.O.'s gone, so they're going to catch a lot more passes. I just thought I'd throw that in just to throw it in. Anyway, but you know, when you get it, it just seems to me, I could be wrong on this, but passing the baton, it's, it, it shouldn't be all that difficult, not if you practice it, not if you work on it. But we've seen that the teams with the greatest athletes actually not even finishing the top three. What? They don't know how to pass the baton. In 2 Timothy, he is passing the baton, and he's passing it to young Timothy because his, his death is imminent. Now, he's tight with Timothy. In uh, 2 Timothy uh, 2, he says, I'm writing to Timothy, my son. And 
these guys had a relationship. Paul was his father in the Lord. Uh, Paul was his mentor. Paul was the guy that looked out for him. Paul was the guy that coached him. And, And I think that's significant because the heart of this book, this last will and testament of Paul, he, he's really laying out a strategy, and the strategy is one that um, really we should never get away from. You, you know, a lot of times in churches, we're looking for the next new thing. We're looking for the next trend. We're looking for this or this or that. But, you know, when all else fails, read the directions. You know, in terms of living life, you really don't need the next trend or this or that. You just need to do the basics well. You, you need to stick with the essentials. And the essential that Paul keeps driving home to Timothy is 2 Timothy 2.2. And probably every time we meet and do this study, I'm going to bring it up. Because in 2 Timothy 2.2, you get the heart of what Paul's trying to say to this guy. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's a handing off of the baton. So Paul's run the race. He's, He's about to finish the course. I'm handing this to you, Timothy, and now it's your job to take this and run. And the things that you've heard in me, the things you've seen in my life, I want you, in turn, to teach these things to faithful men. And then when you pass off the the horizon, they're going to still be there, and they're going to entrust these things to faithful men, and on and on and on and on down through the generations. It's not real complicated. So what this means is, if you're a father, your job is to pass this stuff off to your children. That's your job. So how do you do that? How many of you guys still have kids uh, at home living under your roof? Okay. So there's your job. Those are your Timothys. So let me tell you what you ought to do with those kids. If you're really walking with the Lord, you ought, to, you ought to have them up at 4.30 in the morning. You ought to be teaching them Greek and Hebrew, and you ought to be exegeting the book of Romans with them if they're going to be godly men and women. I just love putting guilt on guys. <laughs> just, just, don't you just love to, to be deflated like that? Um, I've actually met guys who have told me that they do that, and that's fine. Uh, I didn't do that when my kids were young. And I don't think we're supposed to do that. Now, if you want to do that, that's up to you. But I don't see that's how we're supposed to do it. Flip over with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy 6. Uh, Once again, you see the same thing in Deuteronomy that you see in 2 Timothy. And... We actually looked at this a few weeks ago. But see, fathers have got to get this drilled into their heads because a lot of times there's an expectation. I see a lot of times guys have false expectations of what it means to be spiritual leaders. And I think one of the reasons guys have false expectations about what it means to be a spiritual leader is that oftentimes our wives have a false expectation about what a guy should do as a spiritual leader. Sometimes wives have this idea that if you're a a husband and father and spiritual leader, you ought, to be in do, you ought to be doing this and this and this and this and this. And I don't necessarily see all those things in the Bible. Here's what I see in the Scripture. If you're a father and if you're a grandfather, uh, 
6.1 of Deuteronomy, this is the commandment, the statutes, the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land which you are going over to possess, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God. You see how this is working? Um, my responsibility is for my son and my daughter, but it doesn't end there. It's also for the grandson and the granddaughter. In other words, my responsibility is to teach my kids... I'm to do with my kids what Paul did with Timothy so that they, in turn, can raise their kids. It's the same principle, only it's within the family. The principle over here in Timothy is within the church family. Now, that's the ideal. So does that mean, and then Paul says uh, in verse 5, he gives me two things that I need to do as a father, two things. The first one is to love God deeply. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. That's my first job as a father is to love God. If you don't love God deeply, you're going to confuse your kids. If you're just a church guy, you're going to confuse your children. Because they know your heart's really not in it, but you're doing it because you're... They can figure that out. They can see right through that stuff. Can't they? Sure they can. And then he says in verse 6, because if you love God, you love God's word. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be in your heart. So that's why you're at Bible study. Because... You love the Lord, and you love this Word, and that's why you bring your Bibles and you're taking notes. You're putting the Word of God in your heart. You're putting the Word of God in your mind. Those who love God love His Word. Now, here's the second thing, verse 7. You shall teach them diligently. So here's the second thing fathers do. The first one is you love God deeply. The second thing is you teach your kids diligently. So look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently at 4.30 in the morning when you get up and teach them Greek and Hebrew. It doesn't say that. It says, you shall teach them diligently to your sons, daughters, if you have them, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. In other words, you know what God says? He's saying, as you go through life with your kids, and teachable moments come up, you teach them. Because you got the Word of God in your heart, and you got the Word of God in your life. You don't need to turn your house into a classroom uh, with, with grades and with pressure. You're just living life. You're following Christ. And as you are in your house, as you're hanging out, or as you're going somewhere on errands, and you get your kids with you, your kids are watching you. Your kids are watching you when a cop pulls you over. They're going to watch how you handle that. And that you're going to teach them a ton of stuff. They're going to learn more from watching you interact with that police officer than they are in a Bible study where you're telling them because they're going to see if you really believe what you teach and they're going to say how you handle being under authority. They're just going to watch your life. They're always watching. Have you noticed this? Kids are always watching. I'll never forget when John said to me, this was years and years ago, um, I've told you this story. I'm taking the boys to school. We're at a stoplight. And this girl, she's probably high school, 17, 18. She's walking across the crosswalk. And, and, and she's got the short skirt. She's got the low-cut deal. She's got the long legs. It's all spilling out. You know, come on, don't look at me that way. You know what I'm talking about. And she's just walking right across, and we're just sitting there. It's me and John and Josh, and we're just walking by. We're trying to get to school. And she walked by, 
And John said to me, he was probably, I don't know, he might have been, he might have been 9, 10, I don't know. He said, hey, Dad. And I said, yeah. He said, Dad, I was watching you. I said, you were watching me? Yeah. He said, I was watching to see if you were going to check out that girl. I said, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, you know, Dad, I watch you all the time. I said, you do? He said, yeah, I watch you all the time, Dad, because I know what you teach. And I'm always watching you to see if you're going to do what you say. I said, well, John, keep watching me. Because if I'm not doing it, I shouldn't be up there saying it, should I? I said, I don't always get it right, John. But I, I want to. He said, I watch you all the time, Dad. I said, well, keep watching, okay? You keep watching. I, because the name of the game, John, is to put it into practice. So here that chick walk by. Uh, is the natural tendency to want to look at her and check her out? And Yeah. But is that what I'm supposed to do? No. So what do I have to do? Well, I had to discipline myself to not go with her. As she walked by, I had to look away. He goes, that's hard to do, Dad. I said, I'm telling you, it's, it's dang hard to do. Because it goes against your natural tendency. But, but you've got to train yourself. And you don't always get it right. And sometimes you slip up. And, you know, and sometimes we slip up. But, but see, you're working on it. Because they're watching. They're watching. All right, back to 2 Timothy. Oh, I almost forgot. Stacy Woods. I read this book. When did I read this book? Gosh, I was my rookie pastor. Yeah, this book came out in 1975. Uh, Stacy Woods is with the Lord now. But he was a missionary pioneer to the United States. Guy grew up in Australia. And he was involved in setting up college ministries with InterVarsity all over the United States. And then he went to Europe, England, um, France, Germany. Quite a guy. And uh, he wrote this biography several years before he died. And, and I just want to give you maybe a page He says, uh, my father was converted in Queensland, Australia, in his late teens. After completing a course in architecture, he was called by God to be an itinerant evangelist and Bible teacher. At first, he worked with an older Christian in a caravan. Later, he had his own caravan, kind of a traveling, you know, deal, a couple of them on the road. Later, he had his own caravan and another young man as a partner in the gospel. He would go to a town, often where there was no church. That's what Paul would do often where there's no church, set up his meeting tent and visit the people house by house, inviting them to the services. Later, when he married, my mother traveled with him, playing a little folding organ and singing. People were converted. He would teach them, rooting them in the scriptures. A local church would be established with elders and deacons. That's what happened in Acts. Um, Father would plan a simple building, and he and the men of the church would build it. And only then did my father feel free to move on. Shortly after I came along, this ministry changed, especially during World War I. However, God used my father to to found quite a number of churches in Queensland, New South Wales, and Victoria. My father, catch this, my father had a profound trust in God and his promises. He took Matthew 6.33 literally, which is, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and... All these things shall be added unto you, food, clothing, shelter. So my dad took that literally. God had promised to meet his need. 
My father never had a salary. He never took up an offering for his ministry, nor authorized anyone else to do so. Never asked anyone for personal financial support. This quiet confidence on the part of both my parents, for my mother stood 100% with my dad, made a deep impression on me. Did you catch that? It made a deep impression on me. He was watching his father to see if he believed what he taught. Trusting God for everything was part of our life. My parents did not preach one thing and live another. The reverse was almost true. They lived this life of faith in God, but didn't really talk about it. They just lived it. Now, this next one is pretty good. He says, I do not recall a time when I did not believe in God. As a consequence, I really have a hard time giving you my date of conversion. In my teens, I went through a brief phase of believing in evolution. Theistic evolution as a viable theory was unknown then. So father insisted I be consequential. I missed something there. Uh, what happened was, I'll just go ahead and tell you. At a certain point, Stacy Woods read a book on theistic evolution and began to think, well, this has got some real merit to it, and uh, this is a good position, and he told his father about it. So his father said, well, my boy, I fully understand. Uh, now that you are an evolutionist, you are excused from family prayer and church attendance. I do not want to force you to be a hypocrite. <laughs> and my whole world fell apart. For you see, if materialistic evolution were true, then the God whom I had known all my life no longer existed. But I had no, I had no hope apart from him. As a family, we proved his existence every day. We knew that God heard and answered prayer. To believe in a world which just happened apart from God who did not exist was impossible. So my teenage excursion into evolution was short-lived. Why? Because he saw how his father lived. He lived on the promises of God, and God came through. And I didn't read the story, but in the next paragraph, he talks about his father and the young man who was traveling with him. It's time for lunch. They set the table. This happened to George Mueller all the time, the orphanage guys. They set the table. They filled the water glasses. And Stacy Wood's father began to pray and thank God for the food. The problem was there was no food. But he thanked God for his promises. And as he's praying, somebody at the door opens the door and... I could read you the story. It's right here. In fact, I'll read it to you. As the prayer ended, a knock sounded on the caravan door. There stood a woman they had never seen before. Me and my man are having a chicken dinner, and I thought you fellers might like some. She had walked more than a quarter of a mile across the fields, bringing that chicken dinner with all the fixings. Now, when you see that, you know that God is the living God. Do you not? And then that's something you pass on. That's the kind of relationship that Paul had with Timothy. Um, it was interesting about this passage. Paul is in Rome and he's in jail. And he knows the end is about to come. And as a result, when, when you're facing death and you're facing the end of your life, the natural thing to do is to start thinking back over your life and all the memories of your life come flooding back to you. Now, this is what happened to Paul. 
in, in verses um, 3, 4, 5, and 6, four times, Paul brings up the whole issue of his memories and remembering. Memories are important. Notice in verse 4, actually verse 3. He says, I thank my God whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did. Now watch this. As I constantly remember you. That's memory. I constantly remember you. Note verse 4. Longing to see you ever as, watch this, as I recall. What's that? That's memory. As I recall your tears. Uh, Note verse 5. I am mindful. What's that? That's memory. I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. He's remembering. Timothy and his relationship with Timothy and when Timothy came to faith in Christ, I am mindful. Verse 6, for this reason, I remind you. That's all memory. It's all memory. And when you're at the end of your life and he's sitting there in, in that prison, he's scrolling through his life. And he's looking over the chapters of his life and he's remembering the grace of God in his life. There are four things in this passage that Paul remembers. And I want to give them to you tonight. There are four things directly related to Timothy. Number one, Paul remembers Timothy's faith. All right? Paul remembers Timothy's faith. Note verse 5. He says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. Uh, That term, that term, literally means unhypocritical. It's a faith that is real. It's a faith that is genuine, Timothy. I am mindful of your faith. It's not a, hypo- it's not a, a faith full of hypocrisy. It's not a faith that says this and does this. It's a faith that adds up. And Timothy... You see, the people who are watching you, the people who are watching you, they know it's a sincere faith. They know your faith adds up. I, I, got, a, I, I got an interesting email this week from someone that I had not talked with in at least uh, 30 years. And I immediately recognized the name of this woman who I first met when she was in junior high school and part of a junior high group. And she had a cousin who was in college, and my brother had a Bible study with some college students, and sometimes this friend would bring this younger cousin with her because parents were working or whatever. She's just a real cute little kid and a lot of fun to be around. So I've known her since she was about 12. But I got an email from her this week. And she asked me to call her, so I did. And I had a pretty, pretty much a pretty good idea what it was about. Because I remember uh, right after she had graduated from high school, she was working in a youth ministry for a guy who was very, very 
charismatic and winsome and just, man, I mean, he could draw kids like nothing you'd ever seen. Had hundreds and hundreds of kids coming to his youth ministry. I mean hundreds of them. He was the big, big guru. And I'll never forget that afternoon where I got a call. And this young girl in the other line, it took me a while to figure out who it was because she was hysterical. And it was this gal. She's about 18. And, and I could hardly understand what she was saying. But she, she, was, she was absolutely out of control. And I asked her where she was, and she told me. And I said, can you get here, or do I need to come get you? And she said, no, I can come to your office. I said, okay. I said, how long will it take you? She said, I, I can probably be there in 10 minutes. I said, you come on over. And she came in. And I'll never forget her body language and the anguish the anguish and the guilt and the condemnation. And she was sitting on that sofa just literally shaking. And I kept trying, and, and I couldn't even get her to respond. I, I, she couldn't even tell me. She was just so distraught. And I said to her at one point, I said, all right, here's, let me do this. Let me, let me, can I ask you some questions? And you just nod your head or shake your head. And she said, okay. Because what she did ask me, what she did ask me, what I did, what I did manage to understand is when she asked me if God could forgive any sin. And I said, yes, he can. So I started asking her some questions. And I said, is this a sexual sin? She nodded. And I said, is it a sexual sin with a, with a guy who's married? Now, I'm no prophet. I mean, but I'm just figuring. There's a reason this gal is this distraught. And I'm just taking a shot. Is this with a married guy? And I knew where she worked. I said, was this with a guy who's in ministry? I said, is it with, and I gave the guy's name. And just another flood of tears, and she almost, she almost passed out. It was with him. And it just wasn't her. It was in other girls in the ministry. Anyway, years and years ago, and she's doing great. But this guy has shown up on the radar screen again. Um, was supposedly repentant years ago. Um, gosh. I actually met with the guy, and, um, and he had left that church and gone to a national youth ministry. When I found out what was going on, and she gave me dates, she gave me all the stuff. And it just wasn't her, it was some other girls. So I met with him and his supervisor. And uh, the guy was real concerned. He was real concerned, not over his sin, but that he might lose his ministry. That was his concern. 
because he had a big-time ministry. And I didn't feel that the guy that was the supervisor was really uh, on the same way. I, I, I didn't feel there was a lot of... Um, I thought they were. I thought they were just screwing around. To tell you the truth, and years later, uh, and and they said all the right things. They said the right things, and I said, "Hey, listen, guys, I've come down here. Uh, I, I've told you you're you're in charge of this, and and this guy needs to be removed from ministry." And the guy said, "Well, the guy that was guilty, he said, oh, I'm repenting all that.'" I said, I, "I'll be honest. With you, I don't know your heart, but if you're repenting, there'll be fruit of repentance." But I said, I'll tell you this, um, if you're not, you, you can con people, but I, God's going to hem you in, and God's going to shut you down. And uh, I, I've done what I can do here, but if, uh, I, you know what, you're not going to mess up any more little girls, leading them to Christ, and then having sex with them in the baptistry, which is what he was doing. Well, years later, I found out that his superior died of AIDS because he was also a great youth speaker, but he would be involved sexually with boys that he would pick off. And the other guy was picking off the girls. And she's contacting me because apparently this guy, who was repentant and in ministry and pastoring and, you know, I've come across him about three times over the years. Um, He... uh, he, he left his wife, who had stayed with him all the years, and now he's in business but has a restraining order on him. And she didn't want to do, so she gave him my name, and I said, that's fine. And over the years, I've talked to the guy several times. And he managed to cover a lot of stuff, and he was speaking at a big-time church. And I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm calling the pastor, and I'm telling him about you. Have you told him what you did? Well, no, it's all covered under the blood. I said, no, it's not. No, let me tell you something. If your heart was right, you would have told him what you did. I'm not saying there's not forgiveness, but I'm saying you have been deceitful in not coming clean because he's putting you in a position of public ministry. And that could come out, and that that, that could shame the name of Christ and the name of this church and the name of this ministry. But you covered that because you want the spotlight. So I'm calling him, and I'm telling him, and I did. Anyway. And I saw a picture recently of this guy and his family, the Christmas card they sent out, his family and his kids and his wife. And it's just, they just looked so, they, doggone it, they just looked holy. They just looked great. But it's a crock, isn't it? Because you know what, Dad? I watch you like a hawk. I watch you all the time. Somebody's watching me, somebody's watching him, and somebody's watching you. Isn't that true? Yes, it is. See, what, what, you know what's missing there? I'll tell you what's missing is a sincere faith. It's a counterfeit faith. It's a guy who's enormously gifted, who can speak who can move you to tears. I've told you this before. Be careful of guys who are good communicators. They're a dime a dozen. And the only reason the guy's a good communicator is that he's gifted. Right? It's the only reason. 
So he's on the circuit, and he moves around, and he does his little bit, and you, know, and you don't know what's going on in his life. These guys are everywhere. Paul thinks about Timothy, and he says, there's a sincere faith. There's congruency. It adds up. What you do in private fits what you say in public. Now, that's the real deal. That's the real thing. And you know why that was so important to Paul? Because Paul had so many disappointing experiences with people who claimed to be of the faith. Notice chapter 1, verse 15. He says, You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia have turned away from me. All the believers in Asia have betrayed me and turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. He names two of the leaders. So all the work he did in Asia, everybody turned, and these two guys were the ringleaders. What was the problem? They didn't have a sincere faith. It was a counterfeit faith. Uh, Notice chapter 2, verse 17. There's more. Uh, He says in 16, avoid worldly empty chatter. It will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Once again, a counterfeit faith. Not a sincere faith, a counterfeit faith. Um, Look at 3.13. This is in one book. Paul says, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And in the context, he's talking about guys inside the church. You know how many times Paul had been disappointed by counterfeit faith? Uh, Then notice, if you will, chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. These are false teachers with false doctrine that tickle people's ears. It's a counterfeit faith. It's not sincere. Notice, if you would, verse 4. And they'll turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That's a counterfeit faith. Oh, by the way, they were all around Paul, and they're all around us. Verse 10. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. There's another counterfeit faith. Verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Hey, let me tell you something. You're against Paul, you're against Jesus. And even to this day, if somebody tells you Well, don't pay attention to that because that's Paul writing. When Paul writes, Jesus writes. You ever heard that? Oh, that's just the Apostle Paul. Hey, let me tell you, he wrote under inspiration of the Spirit of God. You know how the words of Jesus are in red in some of your Bibles? The words of Jesus ought to be read from Genesis to Revelation because it's all the word of Jesus. When Paul wrote Scripture, it's the word of Jesus. Verse 16, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. What's that? It's counterfeit faith. So do you now see why he was so grateful when he remembered uh, Timothy's, what kind of faith? Sincere. Unhypocritical. There's nothing greater than a faith that is not without hypocrisy. That doesn't mean we don't ever sin, but it means when we sin, when we screw up, we fess up and we admit it. That's what it means. I saw Dale Hansen the other night uh, interviewing Tom Hicks, the guy who owns the Stars and the Rangers. And Hansen, you know, is, you know, Hansen, he's, he's asking these questions. And then he puts his zinger in there 
about, uh, he was talking about what's changing with the economy and pro sports. And he says, well, you're not going to see as big a money. You're not going to see long-term contracts. And Hansen basically was alluding to the fact that he had signed that long-term deal with Alex Rodriguez. But he just alluded to it, and Hicks came out and said, sort of like what I did with Alex Rodriguez when I gave him all that money, and he said, that was a pretty dumb move. And I thought, no, there's a class act. The way he handled that, he, he, and he said, you know what? He said, I learned a ton from that. Well, good. Good for you, man. I mean, I really thought it was a classy move. He just stepped up to the plate and goes, yeah, you know, I really screwed up on that deal. I appreciate a guy like it, because I screw up all the time, don't you? But see, when a guy screws up and admits it, hey, that's the real deal. We're not expecting anyone around here to be perfect. But we'd sure love some honesty and some confession, because there's forgiveness. Is there not? Okay, i got to hustle. But you see, you see what a great thing sincere faith is? And you see how damaging counterfeit faith is? Whew. Okay, number two. Um, Paul's doing this memory thing, right? He's remembering, looking back over everything. He remembers Timothy's family in verse 5. He says here, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. Watch this. Which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Flip over to, um, where am I going? Acts 16. Go to your left, if you would. So you get a little background here of when Paul first ran into Timothy. Uh, Acts 16, Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple there was named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Interesting, is it not? That in Timothy's situation, he had a mother who was a believer. He had a grandmother who was a believer. They both had sincere faith, but apparently his father was not a believer. So Timothy came from not the greatest situation in the world. A lot of times we look around. You guys are all aware of dysfunctional families, right? You know what? Every family's dysfunctional. Just think back what happened when your family got together at Christmas, right? Every family in here is dysfunctional because you got a weird uncle somewhere and you got some cousins that aren't half right and, you know, it's just kind of screwy and you're just kind of glad when they leave, right? Can we say that in here? We just said it. It's just kind of, uh, families can be really weird because, because families are made up of people. See, we're all screwed up, are we not? Sure we are. We all have strengths and we have weaknesses. And um, some people are teachable and trying to work on their stuff and others aren't and they live in denial. So those individuals are part of families when you get together. See, every family's got some stuff going on. Every family. And sometimes we look at certain families and say, man, I wish I had a family like that. And, you know, I'm not saying God doesn't bless families and bless them even generationally. But. Every family has its stuff, and every family has its issues. What was uh, Timothy's issue? Timothy's issue was that he had a, a mother who was a strong believer, and a grandmother who was a strong believer, but a dad who wasn't a believer. Well, you know what? That's not the best situation and the best circumstance in the world. Because what I'm saying to you is he had a father who was not a spiritual leader. And, that, and that's a deficit. Because God's called us as men to be spiritual leaders. Well, if your father wasn't a spiritual leader, how in the world do you know how to become a spiritual leader? You find somebody else who is a spiritual leader. Uh, Timothy found Paul. 
And he began to watch him, and he began to listen to him, and he began to emulate him, and he just looked at a model. It doesn't have to be your father. So what I'm saying to you is he didn't have the greatest of all the situations. Um, I've talked to you guys before about George Mueller, the guy in England that had all the orphanages. And this is the short book. I've got the big book on his life. He was the guy that took care of the 2,000 orphans a day, but he'd never let you know that he had a need financially to feed the kids or clothe them. You know, and he's 2,000 kids a day. And so he has his autobiography. The guy lived to be 93 years old. And I told you about that biography. It's this thick, and I read it all the time, and it's just amazing how God would answer prayer, and he wouldn't tell anybody there was a need. But you know what's interesting is that when you look at the background of George Mueller, um, this guy, I mean, this great man of God, but he came from a screwed-up family. His father was a tax collector in Prussia. And, and from an early age, what he would do is he would siphon off money that his dad was collecting, and his dad began to get suspicious, and his dad put some money out, and he took it and hid it in a shoe, and his dad figured it out. But his dad really didn't discipline him. So as a result, this George Mueller in the early days of his life, he basically was a thief, and he was a con man. And when he was in his teens, he would go into other cities, and he would stay in luxurious hotels without any money, and then he would con the people in the hotel to get money to pay the bill. He did it two or three times. The third time he did it, he got caught, and he wound up in prison at the age of 16. This guy who became such a great man of faith. You see, we've all got a screwed up background. It's not where you've been. It's what Christ has done in your life, and it's who he wants to make you into. You see, a lot of times we take these great men of God, and we say, oh, my gosh, oh, my God. But look where they came from. They're just guys. They're guys that are sinners, just like you are and I am. But get, Christ gets a hold of them, and he begins to work in our hearts and our lives, and he began to get some positive role models. By the way, you know that orphanage thing that George Mueller did? And Brian, you've been there how many times in England? You've been there three times. You can still see the buildings. You know what's interesting about that? Is that George Mueller was not the first guy to do that. You see... There was a guy that lived in the 1700s by the name of Augustus Franke. And he was a man that started orphanages, got up to 2,000 kids a day, and would never tell anybody he had a financial need. He would only make his needs made known to God and would trust God by faith to bring in what he needed. And he had that ministry going on for 60 years until he died. When George Mueller was a young man and was converted and came to Christ, he went to a Bible conference, and guess where he stayed? He stayed in that orphanage. Heard the story of Augustus, read his book, and that became the model for his life. He was the Timothy to Augustus Franke's Paul. Isn't that interesting? But most people have never heard of Augustus Franke. We know about George Mueller, but what about Augustus Franke? See, the things, hey, hey, George Mueller, and he never met Augustus, but he read his book. Hey, Mueller, the things you heard from me, entrust these to faithful men, that they might in turn entrust them to, uh, do you see the progression, guys? This is how it works. This is our job. This is our task. You don't have to be a preacher to do this. You just need to be a guy that's following Christ. Is this making any sense? 
there ought to be somebody that you're influencing. There ought to be somebody you're impacting. That's what this is about. Otherwise, you're spinning your wheels, aren't you? So if you've got kids at home, you know that's, that, that, that they're, they're, there they are. That's who you spend your time with. Well, my kids are up and gone, and my kids are somewhere else. Well, that doesn't mean you can't stay in contact with them. And it doesn't mean there can't be somebody else in your life that you have an influence over. You get to, I don't know. But, you know, if you just take in and never give out, you're going to stagnate. Okay. Number three. You ready for number three? Uh, he remembers Timothy's function, his function. That's not the best word, but I was trying to get four Fs, and I had to kind of manipulate it to get function. Now, let me show you what I mean. In verse 6, he says, For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. What, what's that about? Well, Paul was an apostle, and obviously he laid hands on Timothy. Uh, flip back to 1 Timothy 4, verse 14. He says, Timothy, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. That's where you get the word Presbyterian. So obviously, here's what happened. When Paul laid his hands on Timothy, the Spirit of God imparted a spiritual gift to Timothy. Now, does that happen today? No. Well, we were dang guys here at the church. Lay hands on them. That is symbolic. See, that was an apostolic function. And we don't have apostles like that today. But obviously, the Spirit of God did something, and Timothy was endowed with a spiritual gift. Now, here's what can happen with spiritual gifts. And by the way, we all have spiritual gifts. You can read 1 Corinthians 12. You can read Romans 12. Uh, Peter talks about, as each of you has received a special gift. Every believer has a spiritual gift. But there are all kinds of different spiritual gifts. It's just not preachers or missionaries that have spiritual gifts. There are gifts of serving. There are gifts of mercy. There are gifts of giving. There are gifts of faith. Some people have extraordinary faith. That's, that's a gift from God. Um, you can read the list. There are all kinds of gifts. And God gives the gifts as he will. Now, here's the deal. Every guy in here has got a spiritual gift. Because God has given you some kind of, of, of strength and that strength is related to the work that he has for you to do. Um, I, I met a guy recently who's a hospital chaplain. And you know what he deals with every day? He deals with people whose relatives are dying. Every day he deals with that. And you know what? He loves it. He loves being there. He loves ministering to them. He loves talking to them. That's a gift of mercy. What's your gift? You say, I don't know. A lot of guys don't know what their gift is. You know what you ought to do? Ask your wife. Ask a friend. Ask the people who know you best what your gift is. They'll know. They'll tell you. I mean, just don't rely on yourself. I remember when I was in seminary, spiritual gifts were a big deal. I mean, they were big. And there were a lot of conferences on spiritual gifts. And I went to one conference, How to Know Your Spiritual Gift. And I got a big notebook. And I spent the whole weekend, you know, figuring out my spiritual gift. And then several weeks later, I went to another conference of spiritual gifts and the same, you know, different group, but different notebook. But man, it was big and I'm working all this through. How do I know my spiritual gifts? And two things were said. I, I kind of got these two things out of the two weekends. The first way to know your spiritual gift is it's something you have a proclivity for. It's something you're good at. It's just something that comes out of you. 
You don't even need to think about it. And the second thing is, other people see it and recognize it. So I think, okay, it's something I'm good at. It comes naturally to me. It just goes, and other people see it and notice it. And I came up with that my spiritual gift was sin. I mean, it fits the criteria. Because I can lose my temper without thinking. I can be rude. I can be short with my wife. I can do the, And other people notice it and point it out to me. Boy, you were really rude to your wife. Thank you. It's my gift. I appreciate that. See, you can get a little distorted in understanding. So look for somebody who knows you and say, hey, where do you, I'm trying, where, where do you think I'm gifted? I mean, you know, they'll help you know. They'll know. They'll tell you. You know what? You're great. You've got a gift of evangelism. You're great with people who don't know Christ. My brother Jeff is unbelievable with people that don't know Christ. When Jeff was in college, uh, fraternities back then in the 60s were not real popular. In California, he's at UCLA. So what they did was people weren't joining fraternities. So the frat houses in California were going down the tubes because they couldn't get anybody to join the fraternity. It wasn't hip. So they started renting rooms to anybody just to keep the thing going. And Jeff rented a room in a Jewish fraternity. And you know what happened? They elected him president of the fraternity. Because Jeff, that's just, Jeff loves to be with people who aren't Christians. I mean, he's, he's just kind of, Jeff's, if you, some of you guys know Jeff. He's just a little off. He was a linebacker in college, and my mother dropped him when he was a kid. He's, he's a little damaged. He's unbelievable with unbelievers. He disarms them. And he's saying, oh, these guys, you know, they're Jewish guys. They don't believe in Christ. That's all right. He's reading his Bible. He's just doing his normal stuff. And one by one, he starts leading these guys to Christ. It wasn't offensive. They just liked him. And they made him president of the fraternity. He gets a call one day from the national office of that fraternity saying, uh, Jeff, uh, so-and-so from, you know, oh, yeah, how you doing? He goes, hey, well, you know, hey, congratulations on your appointment as president. Yeah. He said, you know, I'm really embarrassed. This is, uh, this is unbelievable. We can't find a record of your joining the fraternity. <laughs> and Jeff said, oh, Jeff said, no, that's, that makes total sense. The guy says it does, and Jeff said, yeah. He says, I'm, I'm not a member of the fraternity. <laughs> I never joined. He, the guy said, what? He goes, I just rent a room there. <laughs> that's absolutely, this is absolutely true. Jeff played uh, football at UCLA and he held the record for having his knee drained. I think it was 65 times and they said, that's it, you're done. So Jeff said, fine. He went out and played rugby for the next 14 years. <laughs> he did. And he's playing with UCLA and they got a tournament up at Stanford. No, it was in Monterey. And they go up there. And one of the guys on the team, his dad's got some real big, you know, estate on 17-mile drive and everybody's going to stay there. And they got their girlfriends and Jeff and Susan who were engaged... You know, they come driving in, everybody's around the pool and barbecue and all that, and walk in, hey, everybody, how you doing, all that, you know, and the, hey, the guys, let me introduce you to my mom and dad, you know, hey, how are you, nice to see you. And then the father said, you know, everybody's standing around, and the father said, well, let us show you to your room. And uh, he said, it's right this way, Jeff and Susan. And Jeff said, oh, you know, just a minute, Mr. Such and Such, he said, this is, this is crazy. Uh, he said, you know, Susan and I, I, I know this is really, this is, this is just nuts, but Susan and I don't sleep together. Because we're not yet married yet. Isn't that a crack up? We think it's wrong to have sexual intercourse before you're married. So you know what? <laughs> you're going to have to put us in two different rooms. And, they, and the guy just looked at him and said, oh, well, that's no problem. 
See, Jeff knew they would think it was weird, so he went ahead and acted like it was weird. <laughs> and you know what he would do? He would completely disarm them, and then they're apologizing to him. <laughs> I've seen Jeff do that a hundred times. Now, can I do that? No, but he can. Why? He's got a gift. You've got a gift. Everybody's got a gift. But you know what can happen? That drift can be, that gift can be like a campfire. You ever go out camping somewhere and then you go out and take a hike and you come back and it's just, just a little wisp of smoke? So what do you do? You gotta, you gotta rekindle that sucker. You get some twigs on there. Rekindle the gift that is in you because that's your, that's your function. God wants to use you. You don't have to be this guy or be this guy. You just need to be, have a sincere faith and be willing to be used by God any way that God wants you to be used. But you know what that brings up? And I'm almost done. You say, wait a minute, you mean God might use me? Well, what if God asks me to do something I'm not comfortable with? Oh, then you're going to have fear. And God will ask you to do something at some point you're not comfortable in doing. That's why in the next verse he says, because number four of my point is, he remembers Timothy's fears. He says in verse 7, Timothy, because Timothy had a load of fears. God has not given us a spirit of fear or cowardice or timidity. Watch this. But of power and love and sound mind or discipline. Now watch this real quick. God's not giving us a spirit of fear. Hey, guys, let me tell you something. When you get fearful and you get anxious and you get worried and you get swept and you get and you start sweating about a situation that's you get no weapon. Now watch this. Emotion is not from God. My anxiety is it starts about a situation that's because you everywhere in the Bible that you read, you see the two words that say fear not. So when fear everywhere heart and the Lord, that's from the enemy. Two words that say and sometimes it's a fear of our jobs or a fear of the future or a fear of this. Sometimes it's a fear of God putting us in a situation where we, where we failed before and we might embarrass ourselves. I don't feel adequate. I don't feel like I can do this. The future or fear Sometimes God puts us in a situation where we failed before and embarrass ourselves. I don't feel like I can do this. Can I tell them a bit of what you told me at Paul's funeral? I just put you on the spot. King. A lot of you guys remember Tell them all in the me. Our friend who, the Lord, I all had Lou Gehrig's disease. And King and his spot. Really, men every. You like Paul's memorial service after. We're sitting around, getting some punch, and King and I are talking with some guys. And he said, "Steve, I don't know if I've ever told you the service after how." I started showing, sitting around. I don't think you have. And I are. And he said, "Well, you know, I work with Paul. We're both medical doctors, and." You know, Paul's deteriorating, and I, I lived down the street, and I told Paul, hey, if I can help you, then give me a call, man. And so, you know, and I'd go over and help him with, you know, yards or something. And we're radiant, and I, I lived, and I, and I told Paul, I can help you, and then give me a call, man. And so, you know, ask, and I'd go over and help with, would, I, I need you to do me a favor. King said, sure, anything you want. He said, I, I need you to take me to Bible study. And King said, well, okay. What King didn't know is that Paul already had three or four guys taking him to Bible study. But Paul would use this with just about everybody who didn't know the Lord. And, hey, I'd like you to uh, take me to Bible study. And King, well, okay, sure. 
And uh, so what do you guys do? Well, we, we study the Bible, and Steve teaches, okay. And, and as King told me, he said, this was kind of new to me, because that's not kind of what I did. And uh, I said, okay, sure, I'll take you and drive you. He said, what do I do when you're in the Bible study? Well, you just sit with me and you listen in. And then if I need to go out, you can wheel me out. Okay, you see, Paul was pretty subtle. <laughs> yeah, you just sit there with me and hear the word of God. So this is what I remember King telling me. He said, so, you know, he said, I wasn't, really didn't study the Bible a lot. He said, I didn't even have a Bible. So I went down to Barnes & Noble because I had to get a Bible for the Bible study. And he said, I, and I'll never forget King telling me, he said, I never saw so many Bibles in my life. I just thought that you get a Bible. But there was all these different translations. And he said, I'm looking at this. He said, I started getting a little nervous because what if I get the wrong Bible? And he said, I finally picked one. I got a New American Standard Bible. Because I'm an American and I'm a patriot and I figured that's the standard. <laughs> Isn't that what you told me, King? That's what he told me. Isn't this a great story? So he gets a New American Standard Bible, which is a great Bible, by the way. It's the one I use. And... He starts showing up at Bible study with Paul. And slowly but surely, you know what happens? The Spirit of God starts taking the Word of God. And, oh, and then King, we were doing Joshua back then, and King said, so the night before, um, he said, I took Paul, and as we were going there, I told him, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of worn out, I'm kind of tired. He said, why are you worn out? He said, I, I stayed up last night reading the book of Joshua. And I said, why did you read the book of Joshua? Well, they might ask me a question. About Joshua. So King stayed up the night before reading the entire book of Joshua. And he says, oh, no, they, don't ask, they won't ask you a question. You just, you know. But you know, to King's credit, he fought off the fear and the discomfort, and he showed up. And the Spirit of God worked. Isn't that interesting? You know, Paul couldn't use all his gifts, but I'll tell you what. He was willing to be used in the way that he could be used, even to his dying day. And you know what, guys? Fear can lock us up. But God's not given us a spirit of fear, but that of power. What's that? That's the Holy Spirit. The power of God is greater than any situation that you could ever get yourself into. So you don't have to fear. He's not given us a spirit of fear, but that of power. And what? Love. The love of God. How much does God love me? God's not going to let you down. You're his son. You belong to him. He's going to build you up. He's going to be there for you. So you've got to remember the power of God. You've got to remember the love of God. And then that leads to not fear, but sound thinking. We're back to thinking. It always comes back to thinking and living off of the truth. Okay, I'm done. Two days ago, I was more discouraged than I have been in a year. I'm just being honest with you. Um. And Monday afternoon, I came back into the house, and I walked in, and Mary started asking me some questions. And she looked at me, and she said, what's wrong? And I said, nothing. I knew knew that wasn't going to (laughs) work. I I said, nothing. She said, something's wrong. And I just quit. You know, a long time ago, I just quit. I just, now I just tell her what's wrong, because she's going to get it out of me eventually, and you might as well just tell them. So I said, well... I said, you know what? I'm having a real tough time right now with anxiety. She said, you are. About what? And I told her. She said, huh. I said, you know, Mary, I couldn't sleep last night. And you know what really ticks me off? Is that I'm teaching about anxiety and how to fight it off, and I couldn't do it last night. I slept maybe two hours. She said, how much did you sleep the night before? I said, not much more than that if I slept two hours. 
She said, and the night before, you were, yeah, I went to wherever I was. I don't know where I was. I was somewhere speaking. And you didn't sleep well that night because of your shoulder. No. She said, hey, Steve, you know what you need to do? You need to take two of those pills that help you sleep, and you need to go to bed. That's what you need to do. So you know what I did? I didn't take one sleeping pill. I took two, and I went to bed. And I woke up many, many hours later. And you know what? My anxiety was gone. The great theologian Vince Lombardi said it best. (laughs) Fatigue makes cowards of us all. Sometimes the wisest thing you can do is to go to sleep and get some rest and let him work for you as you sleep. He gives to his beloved even in their sleep. That's how great of a God he is. So we praise your name, our Father. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul and for his life and that he is still impacting people today all over the world. We're just average guys. We're just regular guys. But we would sure love to influence and impact someone for the kingdom. Thanks for Paul and his life. Thanks for his love for King and for the other guys he worked with and how even as he was deteriorating, he was praying that they might come to know you and receive eternal life. And now, Paul's gone, but King's here. He's following you and he's passing it on. It's just remarkable. how. So we honor you tonight. I pray for each one of us tonight that we'll go home and not just sleep. We need to sleep, so help us to sleep. But help us to sleep deeply and to get that rest. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.